Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker has a new book out, and it's a rarity. The book is called Rationality, What Is It, Why It Seems Scarce, and Why It Matters. The book is an intelligent examination of a core issue in philosophy, and it's written for a general audience. So far, it's debuted at the top of bestseller lists. So I want to look at what is Pinker's case for rationality? How solid is it? The book offers a diagnosis of various kinds of uh, blind spots and cognitive errors that ordinary thinkers fall prey to. Does Pinker himself exhibit any of these blind spots? And what, what to make of this book? What is the analysis that he offers and what can one gain from it? Uh, welcome to New Idea Live, the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we'll be discussing Steven Pinker's book, and we've titled this episode, Steven Pinker's Half-Hearted Dispense of Rationality. We're gonna unpack that title in, in just a moment. I'm Elon Journo, and with me is Ben Baer. Hi, Ben. Hi, Elon. So I wanna get into some of what's strong and, and effective in the book and start with that. And as we get into the topic of the book, and obviously we're assuming that people watching have not read the books, we'll, we'll share with you some of what his arguments are and some clips from Stephen Pinker himself. I thought it'd be useful to start with a little bit about how we're coming to this, what framework we bring to the topic. So we're coming to this from the perspective of the philosophy of objectivism, which takes rationality, and I think there's a definite view of what rationality is in objectivism, taking that as a fundamental virtue. It's, it's central to the philosophy, it's defining of what the philosophy is about. And if you think about what Ayn Rand does in Atlas Shrugged, her masterwork, that's a novel that celebrates the role of reason in human life. And it, rationality is central to the story and to the, the moral of the story. And I, of course, Ayn Rand has a lot to say about rationality and the faculty of reason. That's a, an area where she uh, has original insights and we'll, we'll bring some of that out as we go uh, by contrast and just as context for how we're thinking about these issues. So we'll, we'll come back to this, but I, I thought it'd be useful to start there. And the other thing, Ben, I, I thought it'd be useful if you could share a bit about why this book stands out in today's culture. Because I, I definitely was excited when I saw it come out. And I think a lot of people's anticipation for it is colored by today's context. Sure. And I th I'm sure that today's context is a big part of the reason why Pinker wrote this book when he wrote it. I mean, we are living in an age where we, where science and technology are advancing rapidly. And yet we look around us and so much of our culture is immersed in what appears at least to be one form of irrationality or another, uh, whether it's the kind of uh, religious mentality of the right or other kinds of collectivist tribalism on the left. Uh, and it's, I think that's a, a kind of paradox that Pinker himself uh, acknowledges as part of his motivation for writing. And it's a good reason to write about this. It's a, it's a, this is a time when more people in our culture need to reflect on what's important about rationality. And, and Elon, you mentioned the central value of rationality in Ayn Rand's philosophy. At one point, she said, if you accept the, that reason is absolute, all the rest follows. That is all, everything else that's important about her philosophy. So when I saw this book came out now, I thought this is something we have to read and this is something we have to analyze on this show. Yeah, and I, I think he, having read the book, I think he deserves a lot of praise for taking on this project. I think it's timely and welcome. I was excited to see it. Uh, now, I want to unpack a little what we used as a title. So we put it as the uh, half-hearted defense reason, I think. So let's talk a bit about what that is. It's a metaphor. So I think there's a lot of interesting material in the book. And my, my take 
on the book is that his heart's definitely well motivated. And it's not it's not that he's sort of has reservations about what he's doing, uh, and he's very smart. I think there's no question about that. Um, so why don't we just start with I'm interested as well in your perspective on 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 the book and why you think uh, the case. So let's start with what you think is is powerful and effective in the book. Yeah, I I agree with you that. Uh, his heart, uh, or his mind, as it were, is in the right place on a lot of important issues. Uh, what, what we'll talk about soon is why I just don't think he goes far enough with it. But yeah, we should start with with saying some good things about it. Uh, one thing that I, I like right from the beginning of the book is that Pinker displays a, a an understanding of a broadened concept of rationality that 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 helps at least to make sense of why it is that man is the rational animal, to use the Aristotelian language. He avoids the common mistake of equating rationality with purely deductive formal reasoning, which uh, you know, they teach in the schools, but, not with, but which is not uh, operative in too many of the decisions that we make in everyday life. Uh, he opens with this example of the way this primitive African tribe uses causal reasoning uh, in order to succeed in its hunting and that, you know, implying that this is something that has been part of the, the human cognitive apparatus since our evolution, uh, defines uh, who we are and is our basic tool of survival. Uh, I'm going to have some things later to say about, um, I don't think he's broadened his conception of rationality enough, but that's at least a good start. Um, one other point, uh, another point that I think is 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 good about this book is, especially since Pinker is a psychologist, and there's there's a uh, there's a popular literature that's produced by a lot of cognitive psychologists that focuses on different kinds of so-called cognitive biases that human beings exhibit, especially under various kind of experimental artificial uh, uh, arrangements, which some people will popularized to convey, oh, actually, we're not as rational as we thought. There's all these blind spots that we have, there's all these cognitive distortions that we're uh, apt to uh, fall prey to. And Pinker, of course, knows about this, but he, he's, he also does a good job framing that literature in the context of, well, yes, we can make these mistakes, but we don't have to, and there's ways to avoid them. And when people are you know, uh, given the right kind of context, they often are able to get their way out of these kinds of fallacies. And so there's not this sense of, oh, we're doomed to fall prey to our cognitive biases. No, he, he's, he's optimistic about our capacity to get out of them, which I think is a attitude that he shares in common with many of the uh, great enlightenment thinkers, that, that all human beings have a capacity to reason. Um, he also, when he gets more philosophical on the subject of reason, he, he, there's also some strengths. We'll see there's some weaknesses too, but one strength is he's good at opposing the kind of relativistic argument that uh, our reason is impotent because we uh, there's no truth for us to know this is the kind of relativistic argument that says uh, uh, that uh, truth is relative to your uh, cultural context or something like that and pinker is good at making the point that uh, we th there's a kind of self-refutation involved in that argument that um if if someone claims there's no truth you can you can ask them well do you think that that's true and i think he's right about that. And 
when he comes down from theory to the nitty gritty of practice, there are some good connections that he makes. So I think that the book has a very clear and accessible presentation of some basic logical fallacies and how to avoid them. I think he's especially good and strong on explaining uh, probability theory and how to avoid probabilistic fallacies. And he's also good at explaining how a failure of rationality is evident through the major sectors of our political culture today, that the tribalism that we see, uh, both on the left and the right, is, is, is a failure of rationality. And that's to his credit, since I think he tends to identify more with one camp than the other. So he's not uh, only blaming the other side. He sees this as a problem on both sides. And one last point, which I think is also in keeping with his reverence for the Enlightenment uh, coming, you know, following up from his last book, is that he understands that the progress that we have made, both technologically and to the extent that we've made progress in our morals, can be attributed to rational arguments made by philosophers and other thinkers over the course of history. And he gives a nice little sketch at the end of the book about the influence that rational philosophy has had on both uh, technological and, and importantly on moral progress. Uh, so these are some good points. I, I think he doesn't go far enough though. And that's something we should talk let's, about. Let's explore that. Let's talk about the ways in which the central point of the book is what is rationality and how do we understand it? Why is it scarce? And some of the implications of that. So let's talk a bit about that. And I, I thought it'd be useful to frame some of the critical comments we have about the book with just some observations and you, you know, fill, fill in more here, Ben, because this is a subject you've been teaching about and this is an area uh, you know a lot about. So um, as I understand it from my background uh, and reading on this, it's the, the central issue here is what is rationality? That's a question that philosophers have been grappling with for a long time. It's not, not nearly anything like a settled issue and it's a hard issue. And a lot of things fall out of that. So for example, it, what is the scope of rationality? What is it something that just gets us to certain, helps us identify means ends kind of uh, solutions? Like I, I know I'm hungry, what do I get food? Is, is rationality just something like that? Or can it also tell us about uh, what is valuable in life? Can it get us to questions of value and so on? So is it a means of knowledge and how much knowledge can we gain from it? How does it operate? So these are all hard questions. And, and of course, I, as I hinted at at the beginning, I think Ayn Rand has a lot to say about these sorts of uh, issues. And this is where she has a, a big focus in her, in her thought. And we'll, we'll say a bit more about that. But so you think, is that a fair sort of sketch of where this issue is in the history of philosophy? And so how does Pinker come down on these issues? Yeah, so there are questions that philosophers ask about the nature of reason. What, what is rationality? How do you define it? And there are questions about, as you put it, its scope, which is to say, how much of life does reason actually help us live? How much does it apply to? How much of the universe can it judge? And there are different philosophers who uh, take different positions saying, well, it can judge maybe one sector of life, but not the other. We can't rely, it, rely on it for guidance, for example, with regard to morals, but maybe with other subjects. And as we mentioned at the top, for Ayn Rand, reason is a central 
uh, absolute value. She thinks we have to use it to guide all of our decisions. And so there are some in, important and interesting differences that emerge between her view and something like Pinker's. And one place that you can see this right near the beginning is uh, a point that Pinker makes about the power of reason, even though he's very often stressing just how powerful it is. Uh, there is a point at which he retreats a bit from that and characterizes the nature of rationality as involving what he calls a kind of epistemic humility. Now, I don't think that's his phrase. I think he's getting that uh, from uh, other contemporary thinkers, but it's the idea, well, we should really let him summarize it in his, his own words. I think uh, let's, let's do that right now because we have a clip uh, of an interview of him characterizing this idea. So let's play that clip. It does seem kind of arrogant to say there is objective truth because the reaction is, who the hell are you to claim to have objective truth? But crucially, that's not the claim. The claim is that there exists objective truth. None of us can ever know when we found it. We aspire to it. We form communities that are dedicated to objective truth, like journalism, like science, like democracy, like the court system. Uh, but the fact that we, none of us can ever claim to have it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, nor does it mean that we shouldn't um, aspire to it. So here, uh, and he, he says the same thing in his book. He's he's taking a definite position on the subject of the scope of rationality. He's, he is drawing a limit past which he doesn't think it can go. But now consider the nature of the limit that he's drawing here. It's a pretty significant one for someone who's otherwise spoken so highly of the power of rationality. Uh, he's saying there is an objective truth, but nobody's ever in a position to claim to know it. And it's a striking claim because if you take the same argument that he makes against the relativists uh, who say there is no truth, his argument against that is, well, is that a truth you're stating right there? Uh, it's a, there's a kind of self-undermining nature to that claim that they're making. But it would seem you can make the same argument against what he's now making himself, which is if, if you say that we can never know the truth, do you know that? And how do you know that? It, it, it implies a kind of God's eye perspective where you see the truth over here and you see knowers over there and you come to the conclusion, there the twain shall meet. But if you're not from a God's eye perspective, if you're one of the knowers yourself, uh, how could you ever get to that point? Um, now, I think part of what motivates him to characterize rationality in terms of this sort of epistemic humility is the idea that the problem with irrationality is that it, it, that it involves a kind of short-sighted, in his view, self-interested style of reasoning. He talks about the different cognitive biases as often involving motivated reasoning, where rather than looking at what's true, you want to believe what you want to think is true. And that's, I think, an accurate way of summarizing many of these fallacies. But the question then is, does that mean that what rationality consists in is humility, where you are being self-effacing and not caring about your interests? Well, he himself in the later part of the book goes on to explain how uh, it, it, it looks like there's, there are a lot of consequences that irrational people suffer for their irrationality. There's studies that have been done about people who are more, more prone to uh, engage in various cognitive biases, and uh, there's some reason to think that they don't meet with the best life outcomes. And of course, he's, he's uh, uh, 
noteworthy for popularizing all the good things that rationality has done for our lives. So wouldn't it seem to follow that uh, when you yourself practice rationality, you're doing something that's actually good for you? Uh, and which, you know, isn't it good to know the truth? Uh, and wouldn't one want to then um, take pride in the fact of knowing the truth because of how much good it brings into one's life? So that's, that's one, I think, real limitation on his view of the, of the scope of rationality. Well, maybe we should talk a bit about what he thinks rationality is. How does he define it in the book? And I think we have a clip to, to convey that. Yeah, this is a clip about, it's just a quick clip of his definition, basically, of rationality. So let's do that. So I've got to start with a basic question to put us in the picture. What is rationality? I, I defined it as the use of knowledge to attain a goal, where knowledge, according to the philosopher's standard definition, is justified true belief. That means that rationality is always relative to a goal, and what might seem irrational with respect to one goal might, uh, in fact, be the rational pursuit of some other goal. So that goes by quickly, but it's worth emphasizing what he's saying here. Rationality is the ability to use knowledge to attain goals. And what he's specifically leaving aside here, and we'll see in a minute how he expands on this, is the idea that rationality is not about assessing the goals itself. It is simply instrumental. It's instrumental to the goal. So it's using knowledge to get the goals, but rationality itself doesn't evaluate the goals. This is an idea that he picks up from a philosophic tradition that starts uh, prominently in the 18th century with the works of David Hume, a philosopher that he acknowledges uh, being influenced by. But it's worth thinking about what exactly that means. If you really think all that rationality is, is use of knowledge in the achievement of a goal, then somebody who uses some knowledge in the achievement of what you might think is a completely crazy goal still counts uh, as rational. And this, this actually comes out in various parts of his book where, for example, he talks about uh, the mutually assured destruction doctrine uh, in uh, nuclear geopolitics, where uh, a madman won't be deterred uh, from launching a nuclear strike if they don't care about their own well-being. And therefore, it would seem that their irrationality actually helps them accomplish their goal. But to say that a madman is therefore rational is a strange thing to say. Uh, it's it, and this is what I was referring to earlier when I said, well, he's got a broader conception of reason than some people. He's not just equating reason with formal deduction. He includes an understanding of causal knowledge and induction. But th this, is a, this is an example where I don't think he's going far enough because he's, he's saying reason's only about judging means to ends. It doesn't judge the ends. Now, there's some qualification on that. We'll get to his qualification shortly. But, but he's still, for the most part, completely conceding this Humean empiricist idea that reason doesn't judge ends. And that's, a, that's an, another significant limitation on what the scope and the power of reason are for him. Well, I'm curious what you think of this, Ben, just in re-watching that clip and thinking back to what he says in the book, there seems to be a tension between that view of reason as instrumental, as you, as you put it, it helps you define means ends kind of uh, uh, situations. And a big chunk of the book, if not most of the book, is advice on how to detect 
and overcome biases or faulty thinking, uh, various kinds of uh, fallacies that people are prone to, including how to think about probability and risk and, and so forth. Now, if the premise of giving advice like that is that you can monitor yourself and you can get better as a thinker and that you can set as a goal to be a better thinker. Um, it, I mean, it seems like there's tension there. Maybe I'm not really following how this plays out, but if, if reason is what he says, excuse me, if rationality really is just the ability to use knowledge to attain goals, is that consistent, do you think? Or, I mean, is there a way in which those two fit together? Or? There's, a, there's a, at least a superficial consistency and the way that he presents it is to show the way they're consistent. What various kinds of critical thinking skills and logical principles help one to do is to realize, well, some people, uh, some people have a certain goal, but they're not, they're not thinking in a way that's going to be effective in achieving it. Uh, and so one way this often comes up is when he's, when he's talking about uh, different uh, political actors at making certain arguments, uh, conspiracy theorists, let's say, uh, so-called conspiracy theorists. He doesn't claim that uh, there's something necessarily irrational about their goal. What he claims is that uh, you know they are like us and that they they all want to live in peace and freedom and prosperity too. They just uh, don't realize uh, what's necessary to get to that point. They maybe they don't realize you're not going to have a live in a healthy, free country if you periodically try to overturn elections by, you know, having a, a siege of the U.S. Capitol or something like that. Um, so it, it's still, it's criticizing their understanding of the means to the ends, not, not saying anything about their view of the ends. So let's turn to that question. So it's a philosophic uh, issue to assess can rationality, can reason help you figure out what ultimate ends are, what moral direction you should take in your life? What is the good? And he has quite a bit to say about this. And I am curious to get your reactions to that. So how, how does he, uh, where does he stand on this issue? Can reason help us reach ultimate ends? Yes, I think we should, we should take a look at this next clip where he spells that out a little more. Yeah, uh, Stephen, uh, this is Craig Knotty. Um, your definition of, of um, rationality, uh, use of knowledge to achieve ends. Now, there are intermediate ends, and you do note that rationality can be used to rank uh, and uh, prioritize ends. Um, but the question is, can rationality help us select ultimate ends? Um, Hume would say no, as you pointed out. And, it's, and my impression is that you're a Humean. Aristotle would say yes. Um, but it seems to me that if Hume is right, that rationality can't be used to select ultimate ends, that were ultimately completely unhinged. Because take, take an extreme example, Hitler could have been perfectly rational in pursuit of his ends, right? If, if the end is you know, exterminating the Jewish people, then he was you know, all too rational how to accomplish it, yes. Yeah, uh, so do you I, think rationality can be used, can be applied to selecting ultimate ends? I, I do, and I in the book I, I extend this argument that um, on the one hand, uh, Hume was uh, he, he was no slouch, and, and one would be well advised not to argue against uh, Hume. But his point was correct, but very, very narrow, as I think he himself would be the first to admit. He noted that it's not rational in that strict sense of rationality to prefer being healthy as opposed to sick, uncomfortable, uh, comfortable as opposed to in pain, hungry as opposed to well-fed, that those were not rationally justifiable. Okay, 
that is technically true, but we do prefer to be healthy rather than sick and comfortable rather than in pain. Once you grant that, uh, as a, you know, call me, call me foolish, call me irrational. I'd really rather not be sick. I'd really rather not be hungry. Once you grant that, a lot follows. Namely, that if, uh, and, sorry, once you add in one other assumption, namely, we are social creatures and our well-being depends on the actions of others. So you can hurt me and I can hurt you. Now, as long as I am pursuing my own well-being and I'm prevailing on you not to hurt me you know, or to help me, if I'm drowning, will you please extend a branch to pull me out? Uh, please don't um, you know, step on me on the, on, on, on the way to the, uh, to, to the water on the beach. Well, then you really are committed to it being symmetrical. Namely, if I'm prevailing on you not to harm me and to help me, I've got to be committed to help you and not to harm you or else you won't take me seriously. And from that, you get uh, the, the basis of morality, namely the interchangeability of perspectives, the irrelevance of someone's own parochial interests. And you get things like the golden rule, the categorical imperative, the veil of ignorance, the view from nowhere, all ways of saying that as soon as we realize that the difference between me and you has no logical um, weight, then we get uh, morality from self-interest and from sociality. So there's a few things to flag about that comment. And that's, again, something that he elaborates on at greater length in the book. One is you've got that that straightforward admission there that if if Hitler's goal is uh, the Holocaust, then there's a straightforward, in his view, sense in which Hitler is rational. Uh, I think that should raise red flags. That uh, someone who's who's admitting that you should really question: Is this the right conception of rationality? If if that's uh, the implication of it, uh, is it really true that there's nothing that reason can say about whether that goal of a massive, uh, bloody Holocaust is a rational thing to pursue. He seems to push that aside by saying, well, but many of us don't have that goal. Many of us do, in fact, value life and happiness and, and peace and freedom. Um, and surely that's true, but not everybody does. And the ones who don't, like Hitler, are often the ones that we have to make moral assessments of. And so how do we do that if reason is merely instrumental to uh, ends in the way that he and Hume seem to think? Now, he does have this uh, additional qualification, which I take it is meant to blunt the force of that first admission, which is this case that he makes for a certain form of rational morality, uh, where he says morality is, um, consists in a certain kind of impartiality uh, so doesn't take into account one's own interest, which he, I take it, uh, equates with the problem that Hitler had. Um, that's something we should talk about more, but, uh, and whether it's consistent with the earlier thing he said, but uh, that's yeah. coming I, I out. I wanted of you to tell, talk a bit more about that view, because I remember reading this the first time in the book and then hearing his restatement of it here and in other places. I read it and I actually stopped and scratched my head because I thought, I don't, I don't find this convincing. I, he has, we should, maybe we should spell out his argument a bit more, but it, it, it's, and it was also surprisingly quick in the way he deals with it. So it, it, I think it may be a page or two that he spends on this point and the, the, the appeal to the fact that we can end up with something like the golden rule and the view from nowhere. So, so it's really just steps towards what we already know morality looks like this, and we can get to it from certain endpoints that are consistent, what he thinks are consistent with his theory. So maybe let's spell out a bit. What is this argument that he, he sets up for 
a morality that's compatible with rationality, or the rationality can be the base for morality. Uh, and I'm coming to this sympathetic because I think that is something that can be done, but I'm curious, let's spell out, can you just sort of, sort of summarize his perspective on that? Yeah, I'll summarize his argument, but and then say some things about it, but stop me at any time, because we could we could probably do a whole episode just on, on this one point of his book. Um, the idea is that he's he's uh, he starts with the idea that well uh, maybe rationality can't judge our ends, but just suppose that we what we do value, what we do desire, uh, is our own self interest, and that's neither rational nor irrational. Uh, but if it turns out that our own self interest depends on the well being of other people, then something that we adopt with regard to moral principles may have a bearing on whether or not uh, uh, we achieve our self-interest. What exactly though? Um, here, his focus seems to be on the kinds of reasons that we give other people when we're communicating with them. His idea is if uh, I've uh, fallen into a, a creek and I'm trying to get someone to help me, I'm not going to convince them to help me if I just say, well, it's going to be good for me. The, the other person's wondering, well, why is that a reason for me to help? The way that he solves that problem is morality comes up when you start giving impartial reasons, reasons that are supposed to appeal not to my own particular interests or to anyone else's particular interests, but which are supposed to appeal across the board. This is that view from nowhere idea, the idea that there, there are a class of reasons that are impartial with regard to anyone's self-interest, they uh, apply to all of us equally in some way. Uh, and he thinks morality develops because it facilitates that kind of discourse, which he also thinks ends up serving our own individual self-interest. But it's the content of the morality doesn't concern self-interest. He also thinks the kind of independent argument that he gives for this view is that he thinks that a lot of different religions and philosophies have all separately and independently kind of discovered the same idea. That They've all discovered the idea that morality is about impartiality, which means morality is not about self-interest. It's about seeing people as having equal dignity and all of the different obligations that that is supposed to entail. That's the, the basic gist of his argument as far as I understand it. Yeah, and so, it doesn't seem to me like a sound step in reasoning to say, as a matter of fact, a lot of different cultures have reached a certain view in morality. And so there's some weight that should be put on that. Uh, and, I, and I think you made this point in a different context, but that this actually seems like one of the kind of fallacies that he brings up in the book, that this is, you're pointing to well, a lot of people are going in this direction, maybe I should go in this direction too. Yeah, in his defense, I don't think that that's the major argument that he's mm -hmm. making, but it is noteworthy that he does tack it on. Um, mm -hmm. the, the, but I have, I have problems with the, the bigger argument that he's making, the idea that there's this, uh, that there's even a coherent viewpoint here that, you can suppose that impartial moral reasons are adopted ultimately for the sake of some kind of self-interest. To me, it comes across sounding a lot like a really ancient argument that's, that's portrayed in Plato's Republic. If, any of them, any, if anyone's read 
Republic, they maybe remember the notorious character of Thrasymachus, who says, the justice is the advantage of the stronger. And what he means by that at the end of the day is something like we, we practice uh, moral uh, principles, which are ostensibly uh, not about our self-interest, but we only practice them because of that. Uh, sometimes Thomas Hobbes is associated with this idea. And it's a kind of cynical view of morality. It's the, it's the view that the content of morality, which he says is impartial, is, uh, is, is different from the reasons that we have for adopting it. And I don't think that's really a coherent view. I also don't think that's the view that all these other religions and philosophies claim to have discovered that he's otherwise saying it, are in the same boat of the view that he's, that he's talking about. They certainly don't think um, that if moral reasons are impartial, that, that, that the motivation with reference to some kind of self-interest uh, is, is compatible with adopting and practicing those reasons. Um, another item that I would just add uh, onto that is that the whole perspective here is very linguistic in the sense that it sees the basic function of morality as, as, as about persuading other people to do things, as about uh, praising and blaming them and the function of that in social discourse. Morality is not seen as a code of principles for guiding our own decisions. I mean, if it were, it would be a lot harder to see how this idea of impartiality uh, could play a role in it, since that's a perspective that nobody can actually take when they are making their own decisions. Uh, one point I wanted to go back to, and maybe I'm making too much of this. You can you can you can be the arbiter of that. Uh, there's something strange to me in looking at the fact that a number of religions and philosophical traditions or thinkers have reached a certain view. And well, and maybe there's something there, right? So there's this kind of assumption, well, maybe, maybe we've reached some sort of truth and now this sort of retrofitting to make sense of how to justify that. So and I grant your point that it's not how all the advocates of that view hold it. I would have thought that taking on the issue of rationality would entail being more critical of those traditions and asking, well, does this actually, so, so thinking about the ends, uh, these, uh, are these ultimate ends that we hear about from conventional morality and traditional views, do they really make sense by the standard of rationality? Can we justify them? How do we know that these are actually good independent of the fact that where they just happen to be here as a product of many, many people's thinking and, and tradition. So that seems like a step that I would have wanted greater uh, analysis on his part, because I think that that's a crucial question, right? It's not an obvious fact that, because you think about it, just to make, draw out one uh, implication of this, is it, take an individual who follows that principle, does it make their life better? Are they, are they actually, can, can they navigate and achieve things that are important in their lives? It's not at all obvious to me. I mean, I, th I don't think it's true, but I think if you're approaching this subject with being an advocate of rationality, I think this would be, it'd be incumbent on you to really be more critical than that. Yeah, uh, Pinker is otherwise known as a critic of religious mysticism and of various kinds of what he often calls woo-woo. So it is surprising when he gives this kind of credit 
to various religious traditions, you get the sense that he's, I guess, trying to be broad minded and saying, no, we all have something in common in spite of our many differences, which is consistent with that earlier point that I made about his view of rationality, that everybody really desires the same ends. It's just that they don't understand the right means to those ends. And so I guess his take on religious uh, views of morality would be, well, they all want to uh, get along with us too. It's just that they've, they've uh, formulated in, in many cases the wrong principles uh, as a means to that end. But he's not really disputing here their perspective on the end. And even giving credence to the idea that they discovered some truth about morality, which he says they even did it independently. And here's one of those places where I think it's worth pointing out that some of the very kinds of uh, blind spots and cognitive biases that he's trying to warn us against might be operative in his own argument. I mean, he spends a lot of time making a big deal about uh, what counts as rational probabilistic reasoning. And if you, if you first of all think, you know, one, one important thing you do when you do probabilistic reasoning is you make sure all of your data is independent, that it's not the case that there's uh, confounding variables that you are unaware of. But it's not true that these different religious traditions are all independent of each other. It, many of them have influenced each other, and that's part of the reason why they all come to the same conclusion. Uh, and so that's a problem right there. But there's also the problem that if you thought that these religions were somehow in the position to discover the truth about morality, there's a question of, well, what gives them this power? By, their, by, by Pinker's own lights, they, they're not using a scientific methodology in order to find out these moral truths. Pinker doesn't make clear what the facts are that make those moral truths possible. Uh, don't we have a lot of reason to think that there's a there's a big uh, a big noise to signal ratio here where you could expect that and this is something he has a whole chapter on the signal noise ratio issue wouldn't you expect the religious theories to come up with views quite like this even if it wasn't because of the fact that they were discovering something true because uh, the cause of the religion is served by encouraging self-sacrifice. If, if, if a religion wants people to believe it blindly, it's also going to want them to sacrifice their minds. And that's a kind of impartiality, but not, not one that obviously contributes to any kind of human welfare and not one that's obviously responding to some truth that, uh, that these different thinkers might have discovered. There's a number of other kinds of cognitive biases that you could uh, mention here, but I guess just one more that I'll mention is Pinker makes a big deal, and he's he's noteworthy for uh, identifying lots of cases where people uh, commit fallacies because they rely on what he calls the availability heuristic or the availability bias, where the thing that's the closest to mind uh, in your memory uh, informs your thinking about some important subject. So he talks a lot about how we see bad news in the headlines. And it makes us think things are worse than they actually are. When you look at the numbers, it turns out things are actually getting better. And that's a big part of what he's arguing for in Enlightenment now. But there's a kind of availability bias in his own thinking here about what morality is and where it comes from. If, because of the fact that morality as impartiality is a very recent view in the history of ethics. It's, it's one that uh, has a, been adopted prominently by various secular thinkers really only in the past two, 300 years. Um, you go back to ancient Greece, they don't have anything like this at all. 
this impartiality view. They, they see morality and ethics as intimately connected to human flourishing. Uh, and they, they don't have this egalitarian view where every person is equally important and has equal dignity regardless of their differences in virtue versus vice. Um, so there's a, I think there's a kind of availability heuristic here that's contributing to the kind of bandwagon fallacy. Everybody in this current century thinks of ethics this way. Therefore, that's what it must be. This, this is the truth that they've all discovered. I'm just curious if you think that some of that might be the influence of enlightenment thinking. So I, if I understand correctly, the moral views that were dominant among the best of the enlightenment thinkers, they, they, that was not something they pushed very hard on. And so it wouldn't be surprising if he, he isn't doing that. But what's your thought on that? Well, I recently read a book on the history of ethics in the enlightenment. And the, this is one of, I think, the enlightenment's great failures, that it doesn't grapple uh, more seriously with the rational foundations of morality. There are at early attempts uh, in the Enlightenment, especially in England, among some very uh, obscure thinkers, to, to reconcile the claims of morality with the claims of self-interest, uh, rational self-interest in particular. Uh, some of them are influenced by Aristotle's eudaimonism. Uh, but what you get at the end of the Enlightenment, especially with Hume, is the idea that what morality consists in is taking this detached, disinterested perspective on a situation and being able to put yourself in the shoes of another person without necessarily having any of your own interests at stake. And morality is this kind of disinterest then and in part comes from Hume, influences a whole slew of other uh, post-Enlightenment thinkers uh, from uh, Bentham to Mill to Sidgwick to Kant. And it so it, it is a recent, uh, uh, view in part because of the Enlightenment, but I think because of some of the failures of the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So just want, want to make one point here about, uh, this is not a comparison of Pinker and Ayn Rand, but I think it's important to talk a bit about Ayn Rand because she is in, in important ways, she has a, a connection with the Enlightenment way of thinking in the emphasis on reason and the individual. And I think this is a, I always wonder if how much engagement he's had with Ayn Rand's thought. I mean, from his other work, I think mean, there's a, a brief mention of her, I think in Enlightenment now, uh, and it was not, I don't think it reflected real engagement with her views, I think quite the opposite. And I, it, it occurred to me that on this, for this book, I think he would have benefited from reading her on this because this is exactly the kind of issue that she has a lot of really penetrating things to say, which is the rational foundation for morality. And, and, in, and, just, and even broad, so if he's moving towards a broader conception of rationality than some thinkers have, so beyond, as you put it, just deductive thinking, and I think it's good that he's doing that. I think there's more to be gained from engaging with Rand on this because her conception of rationality is still more rich than the kind that he's trying to put together on the page. And it's in the sense of, it's much, uh, uh, she has a view about how rationality, reason works or as a faculty, not from the perspective of a, of a neuroscientist or a psychologist the way Pinker is, but a deeply philosophical perspective on what it is and how it approaches it. And just as for people who aren't familiar with her, who might be watching, 
she does have an answer to can you gain objective knowledge and she thinks it is a is it, it is attainable and each of us can attain it if we take steps in accordance with rules of, of thought principles of thinking and her other on the other question can reason reach objective moral values and her answer again is yes and, and it's not that it's easy to do but it, it, it is doable and i think that's a big innovation in her thought and in this respect there is a definite tie in that to the enlightenment thinking which is if the argument is the enlightenment was weak on this issue ayn rand comes at the end of this long progression and fills in what was missing for the enlightenment in terms of moral thinking and not the only thing she's doing but i think it's an important contribution to that whole approach to thinking about where what life is about and what the role of the individual is and how to guide life in that way. So Ilan, uh, one of the things we mentioned at the top that I think was good about Pinker's book was his emphasis on how irrationality infects every major segment of our culture and explains the kind of political tribalism that we see around us. Uh, this is something I think you wanted to say more about, and I agree it's, it's a good uh, issue to discuss, especially as it bears on differences between Pinker and Rand on matters of substance. Definitely. So the book's subtitle is Why is, why is Rationality Scarce or Seems Scarce? And uh, that's one reason I was excited to read the book. I wanted to see what Pinker's uh, view of this is, because I think, as you, as you indicated when we started the conversation, there's no doubt that rationality is scarce. I think you can take seams and strike it out. I don't think there's any seeming here. It's definitely the case. Uh, even as we can acknowledge, and I think it's important to acknowledge all the innovation and progress that we're seeing in technology and in science and in other fields, there are amazing steps being made. But on the whole, there is a real problem of the uh, reason and rationality being devalued and, and, and deprecated throughout the culture. So I was curious what he has to say on this. Uh, and I agree with your point from earlier that one of his observations, and it, it comes up and it moves along quickly, but it's still penetrating, that what we are seeing is that the political factions that used to be the, the dividing point in our society, and, and he takes that to mean political ideological, so based on ideas and different views of how society should be organized. In his conception, it's the left, right, kind of division from long ago. His analysis is that's no longer an ideas-based or ideological division, but tribal. And, and he says that it's uh, not tribal in the traditional sense of held together by kinship, but tribal in the sense of held together like a faith in, in being morally superior than the other tribe. And I think that's, and having contempt for the other tribe. I think that is, act, that is apt. It definitely captures major strains in today's political intellectual landscape. And he, I think there's interesting things about him as a public intellectual who has borne some of the, <laughs> some of the wrath of, of various tribes. He's been, people have tried to quote, cancel him in the sense that he, they think his views are too heterodox and so forth. So he's seen this from both sides, both being part of intellectual establishment and being uh, the target of various criticisms. Now, that is unfortunately just a small part of his account of why it's scarce and what can be done about that. It, it, it goes by very quickly. 
And as penetrating as it, I think it is, it doesn't really explain very much. And certainly doesn't explain enough that I think, and I hope I, I hope this is not idiosyncratic. I think other readers would come in expecting the same kind of uh, thing, which is that this kind of book would spend more time accounting for why, uh, why is rationality so scarce? What is it with people, as he puts it in the title of his chapter? Um, and he has uh, some, some points there about what accounts for the rise of conspiracy thinking. And, and he dismisses the, the, the glib answers like social media. He doesn't think social media is the primary, it's just a contributing factor. And I think he's right about that. But the, the wider point that struck me after reading this account of his about where we are culturally is it doesn't go, doesn't go deep enough in the sense that I don't think you can really explain why rationality is so scarce without really thinking about how rationality has been thought about and the defenses it's, it's received over the last few uh, decades, uh, not only decades, but sort of centuries. So we've mentioned the enlightenment. I think that was the high point of bringing reason to the forefront as a value and rationality as a means to, to human ends and human flourishing and progress. But ever since then, and, and you know, this is something where we, you know, we had a whole conference about the Enlightenment just a few months ago, and there's a lot to say here. So this is just a mere sketch. But ever since then, there, that was a high point from which we've descended very rapidly. And the, the whole intellectual tradition since then has been to devalue and minimize and, and hem in the scope of what reason is and what rationality can do. So they're in a concerted attack that didn't, so in the face of such attacks, sort of the counter enlightenment uh, trends that arose in the last couple of uh, centuries intellectually, there has been no real pushback to them. I think the, uh, Ayn Rand stands as a lone figure in this respect as, as putting reason at the center of her philosophical thinking and reason understood in a, a rich, deep sense, not merely as something that we do in, in classes on logic and, and uh, what feels like very uh, out of the way, not a daily kind of occurrence. So I think there's a, uh, a you can call it a blind spot. I don't think it's really a blind spot. I think it's just that he, I don't know if he's engaged deeply enough with this question of why is it that a book like his is necessary today? And it isn't just because of the last four or eight years or 12 years of what we're seeing in the political landscape. There's there's a longer uh, progression that we are now seeing uh, the fruits of or the bitter fruits of that to understand it, I think one has to look at the, intel the intellectual philosophical perspective on rationality and how it has been battered from left and right and, and every, every possible direction without any kind of serious uh, defense. And I think this is something we care a lot about at the Institute. And I think a lot of the kind of the work that we do is to bring this out. Uh, I'm just cur curious your thoughts on that, Ben. Yeah, and I think this is this is where the rubber meets the road with regard to the topic of whether reason can judge ultimate ends. So you mentioned a, a moment ago about how what uh, political tribes seem to be motivated by is not some kind of intellectual ideological ideal, but often simply opposition to the other tribe, hating the other side. 
And that's something to think seriously about when considering, do we need philosophy uh, for the sake of evaluating and identifying uh, ultimate rational goals? Because one of the reasons P Pinker doesn't think that it's necessary is he thinks, well, we, we actually all do really value the same thing, you know, leave Hitler aside, but um, no, we're all on the same side. We're just not, not everybody knows how to get there. But the way that you characterized tribalism, and I think he often does it himself, should cause us to question that. Do the people who are the leaders of these tribalist groups and do, do all of the participants in these groups, do they all really value the same thing? Uh, do they even value something fundamentally positive? Or is it more that they, that they hate the other side, as, as you suggested? That suggests a real difference in their orientation toward ultimate goals. And I think, so Yvonne, you, you, you mentioned that there's been this default by philosophers on defending the power and the scope of rationality. And if one of the ways in which they've defaulted is being able to explain why some ends are better than others, or rather why some ends are rational and some aren't justifiable ends at all, then this is exactly the kind of behavior you would expect. You would expect people to say, uh, who are you to judge my religious objective? I think we should all aim at the afterlife and destroy those people who want to stop us from getting there. Uh, you can't say that I'm irrational. And so when I join my tribe, that's my own truth, man. And who are you to judge? And likewise, when the other side says, uh, uh, I, I value un, uh, untouched, pristine nature, and I want to tear down the capitalists. That's my ultimate goal. Who are you to judge? When no one comes forward to explain how one would actually judge that, then those who are uh, willing to take just any old end they like and, and form a tribe around it are empowered. And I think that's exactly what we have happening uh, in our culture today. Uh, so we need an alternative. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot more to say about how our society has reached this point. And one of the powerful accounts I, I think people could gain a lot from reading is Rand's account of the decline or the explanation of the decline of our intellectual culture. And one of the points she raises is that it's, it's I mean, the central point is it's philosophical. And that's the point I was trying to indicate earlier, but partly, to see how that works out is you have to look at what education has been doing, what, what education looks like in the last 150 years, particularly in, in uh, Western countries, and what, what effects that has on people's ability to think. So their ability to use their faculty of reason, why it is that we have tribes, why do people gravitate towards collectives and particularly tribes today? And the, there's no explanation for that without seeing that if you tell people that they can't think and they can't choose their own goals in life and, and, and be justified in doing that, they're gonna seek some authority and the authority of a group is often what people gravitate to. So there's, there's a whole, uh, there's a lot to understand about how we got here and, and how that fits in with this issue of what is rationality and what is its scope that I think, I. I, I wish there were more of that kind of analysis here uh, and that I think people interested in that can find more uh, to, to process and think about uh, in some of those sources we mentioned. So Ben, you know, we're, we're coming up on time. I thought maybe uh, we can say something uh, about, 
Pinker's, is there a better direction that can come out of Pinker's view and then maybe take some of the questions? And for people, if we don't get your question, we we're gonna jump into Clubhouse soon after this live stream. So we hope you will join us there. We'll try to address some of those. So do, why don't you tell us a bit more about, is there, other the is there something here that could lead in better directions? Yeah, I mean, we, we shouldn't uh, just say philosophers should figure out how to judge ultimate ends without giving at least some indications of how they might do it and how we think maybe some philosophers like Ayn Rand have 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 already done. And what seems challenging about the prospect is the idea that ultimate ends are these fundamental value judgments about what we ought to do with ourselves. And that raises the specter of the so-called is-ought problem. How do you bridge the gap between those two kinds of claims in reason? That's a problem that, that comes out of Hume again. And I think part of the solution to that problem, a big part of the solution to that problem, is implicit in some of the things that Pinker himself realizes. He recognizes that the norms of rationality, which he spells out in great detail uh, in his book, are norms that they're, they're norms for telling us how we ought to think. Now, does that mean that there's an is-ought problem for rationality, that you can't reduce the norms of thinking to some basic facts and that therefore rationality isn't really rational? I mean, that wouldn't make any sense. So in fact, Ayn Rand herself thought that there was no special problem here. Uh, she thought that the, uh, the norms of human life, of, of morality, are based on facts, facts about the needs of human organisms, uh, the needs of human life, uh, basically biological facts, and that there is no special is-ought problem for the kind of reason that I was just talking about before, that, that morality is uh, essentially a kind of employment of reason for deciding what we ought to do. There's no dichotomy between theoretical and practical reason uh, reason is about telling us what's right to think. Morality is about telling us what's right to do. And uh, morality uses reason in order to figure that out, in order to figure out what is necessary for our lives as rational being. In various uh, parts of his book, Pinker himself uh, uh, points out, I already mentioned a few, how rationality is actually an important means to our own individual lives, uh, to our own self-interest. The only reason I think that he ends up embracing this idea that um, that uh, uh, morality is about something more than self-interest, that it's about impartiality, is because self-interest in our culture has this uh, bad name to it. That it, it's often taken to mean uh, short-sighted, narrow, hedonistic indulgement in 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 mindless pleasure. But it's also worth pointing out that that's a pretty controversial understanding of what self-interest actually is. And Pinker himself realizes this at various points in the book when he's diagnosing various cognitive biases, he points out, no, there's a wider conception of self-interest. Uh, you can't reduce it to narrow calculations of monetary value or uh, utility, uh, that it includes more than that, that certain kinds of goals aren't, aren't rational and aren't in your self-interest by reference to longer term goals. And that's a view that Ayn Rand herself has a lot more to say about. She uh, thinks that the that self-interest is the interest of the self, where the self is not just a bundle of uh, desires, but the rational mind. Uh, and that self-interest 
means that a, that morality, a morality of self-interest means identifying the terms, methods, conditions, requirements, and goals needed for the life of a rational being in the long range. So yeah, there is a lot more here for enlightenment-oriented thinkers to explore if what they want to do is to figure out a way that reason can evaluate ultimate ends and ground them in scientific facts that I think he's uh, he's not paying attention to. And it's, it's not just that he hasn't looked at Ayn Rand carefully enough, though I think that's also true. I mean, there are other philosophers uh, in contemporary philosophy who, who come to similar conclusions about reason's power to evaluate ends. They don't have quite the same reasons as Ayn Rand does, but like, I don't know, uh, Stephen Pinker should take a look at the work of uh, Philippa Foote and Michael Thompson, see what he finds there. And uh, then we could have, a, I think, a better conversation of how I think Ayn Rand's views are even uh, build on some of the, in, the Aristotelian insights that you see in those contemporary thinkers. Well, I think we, we're actually at time. So we'll, any questions that we have, we'll, we'll just roll them over into Clubhouse. So thank you all for being here. We're moving to Clubhouse in just a moment. If you guys want to join us, there are, it's in the Ayn Rand Club, easy to find. If you're not already connected to us, just drop by, love to have you. And let's share some resources. Uh, we've talked about some issues that I think people want to explore. Take a look at uh, Ayn Rand's seminal essay, The Objectivist Ethics, which you can find online. We've got a short link for you. It's bit.ly slash obj hyphen ethics. And our colleague Ankar Gate has an interesting article uh, titled Finding Morality and Happiness Without God. And this is a, a response to a very common view that if there is no God, there is no morality. You can't have you can't draw morality out of any kind of factual basis. And you can find that one online. That's in our journal, New Ideal. The short link for you is bit.ly slash finding hyphen morality. And Ben has an interesting article on uh, some of the issues that we've talked about, this idea that uh, morality is more than what most people think it means. Uh, they have a kind of narrow conception of it. And the title of that essay is, why scientific progress in ethics is frozen. And the short link for that is bit.ly slash frozen ethics. So you can no, I say dive into Yeah, go ahead. About Ankar's essay, one of the things that's really good about it, I think, is that it, it really spells out uh, the way in which scientific rationality and moral guidance are one and the same thing, which is one of the things that the connections I've been trying to stress today. Uh, that the, the reason why someone like Galileo or Newton is a hero and not just someone who's done something nice is beca because of the way they've, uh, they've pursued truth in a heroic way. And so that, that, I think, helps flesh out that connection between morality and rationality and, and how you identify an ultimate goal. So those are some things people are welcome to dive into. And we are doing uh, an episode coming up in December, which will be a Q&A. You can send us your questions. We are listening. We, we look at the questions people post in the chat on YouTube and other platforms, but the, the best way to get your question into the queue is to email us, newideal at einrand.org, and the episode will happen December 1st. So get your question in before then to be considered. We're looking forward to seeing what you have on your mind. And finally, for those of you watching us live or on, on demand, please subscribe, click the bell, uh, like, leave us a comment. We always look at what you have to say, love to see it. And this also helps us reach more people by uh, 
exciting the algorithm, whatever it is that you need to be doing on YouTube. And the same is true for the other social platforms like Facebook or Twitter, if you're watching us on one of those, please like, leave a comment, share, uh, help us spread the word and connect with more people. We'd love to do that. So thank you all for being here. Ben and I are moving to Clubhouse in just a moment. We hope to see some of you there. Until next time. And thank you for some of the very generous uh, Super Chat donations that we got. We got some really good ones today. Thank you all. If you'd like to talk with us more about this, join us on Clubhouse in just a minute. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.